listening to the Dr. Claude Kirshner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirshner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. two concepts called the elephant and the rider. And the elephant is the emotion. The elephant doesn't really, it's just gonna get roused up, they're gonna go places, but they carry you. The emotion drives the decision. Then you have a rider on top of the elephant, which is the logic that says elephant go this way, but when the elephant decides to sit down and be emotional and not wanna deal with it, the logic isn't going to move it. So the elephant and the rider have to move together. The emotion drives the decision. It's a powerful force, but the logic is going to cooperate with the emotion in order for it to get down that path successfully and safely. The content that we're gonna to learn tonight is some of the most practical content that you can apply to your life. And the decisions that we make will determine the outlook and outcome of our life, little decisions, big decisions. And it's really important that we reflect on how we make these decisions and what factors we take into consideration when we do. How do you make important decisions? Facts, that's good. Yeah. What else? Cost, priority. priority, time. These are factors to consider when making a decision. Consequences, the priorities, what's most important? Should I put my seatbelt on in the car? How important is this? Remember the question is how do we make decisions? And this is all good stuff, but these are factors to consider in the process of making a decision. So you listed a bunch of things to think about, you take into consideration a lot of different factors in the process of making decisions. Consultation. Would you do that on what kind of cereal you want to get at the grocery store? No. Would you do that on which doctor you use for your surgery? Yes. Yeah. Research is a good one. What are you researching? The decision of picking out a cereal could have consequences if you're allergic to oats. And you should probably do some research on the cereal box to see if they have that ingredient in there. So even the small decisions have consequences. Doing research is not receiving consultation. Doing research is really providing yourself your own consultation based on the information out there or consulting with other avenues of information sharing. But when you ask somebody else, what would you do or what do you think, I would consider that more of a consultation, which is a great thing to do. Of course, that takes more time. Consulting with a higher power. Yeah. It could be uh, resources, it could be location, it could be your friend was there, you got a recommendation. You went through a, a thought process. And sometimes that thought process is intentional, sometimes that thought process is not as intentional as it should be, or it doesn't need to be intentional. There's decisions that we make based on just life, our, how our brain works, stigmas and biases and heuristics. It, it narrows down the decision-making pool or the options. So could our decision to eat food be triggered by our environment if we're in a, a donut shop we're probably going to choose to eat foods that we shouldn't eat versus if we're in a classroom where there's no donuts around us there's less environmental triggers to have us make decisions is our environment a factor that we should consider while making decisions how about the time of day mm -hmm. if it's a really important decision and you just came home and it's seven o'clock at night, is this the right time to have that difficult conversation with your child or your parent about that critical subject matter that you want to decide on? So maybe taking an inventory of how you're doing. These are all factors that we need to consider on making decisions. Okay, so now we're, we're sort of shifting from the smaller level decision making, and now think about a structure. And organizations are really put into what would be a, a hierarchical structure, a structure of power, responsibility, authority, decision-making power is embedded into a structure. And a lot of times, structure, if you think about it, I get up in the morning, I brush my teeth, I go to the gym, I have my house, I have my key. It's, a, it's all a structure of how I start my day and how I begin a process. Organizations are set up in a very similar dynamic where they are structured to make decision-making easier in flow or they're structured to control decision making and limit people from making decisions that they should make. So we'll talk more about how structure is designed, the delineation of power, but when you think about some of those things I said, 
let's now answer that question. How could the structure of an organization help or hurt the decision-making process? And what if something was not right and needed to be fixed, but you didn't have the power to fix it, but it was sitting there not right for a couple days waiting for a decision to be made? It's a problem, right? Yeah, so that speed, that fast response could be hindered by the structure. Timely manner and fast response. Does anybody have an example of how a structure does the opposite, how it makes something quicker to make a decision? Power it needs to be used efficiently. If there's something that needs to get done and you ask somebody else to do it, what is that called? Delegating. So what you sort of explained is, hey, my department or my team or me at work, I need something done. And I can do it myself, and it might take a decent amount of time because the light is broken, and I don't really know how to fix those kind of lights. Or I can just make a phone call, somebody comes over, takes care of it, I don't worry about it. And whatever that is, it either hinders your ability to get your work done, so you need it to be fixed, or you need to do it for work purposes, meaning you need to call a customer, but you don't deal with that. You do the finance stuff. You do the back-end office. So you delegate the, the reaching out to the customer to the customer service team. You correspond internally with them is a lot more efficient than having to talk to the customer yourself, transcribing the message. So that, that's a really good point. That's how the structure of an organization could help you get a task done quicker. But sometimes we may not know the resolution to the problem, and we may need to, like we set up here, we may need to consult, we may need to figure it out, or we just delegate it. Or we have a problem, we know the solution, so we go straight to the person who can provide the solution. And we skip the time figuring out what's the problem. We know what it is, so we just go straight to the, we go to Staples ourselves. We get the new Staples because the office ran out. Or we call the customer, it's just a quick question. We don't need to delegate it because we can solve it ourselves. So the quickest way to get to the solution is always better. And sometimes structures get in the way of that. The solution is so simple and straightforward, and you just need somebody to do it, but you haven't been able to get approval for it yet, or you're not allowed to do it yourself, or you haven't been given the authority to tell the person to do it. We're going to learn how to make decisions. So we're thinking about, okay, we got goals. We have a plan to achieve the goals. What comes first, the plan or the goal? It kind of works at the same time, but usually you need a goal before you come up with a plan. But the process usually happens at the same time. Goal setting and planning is an iterative process. So now we have a plan and we have a goal. And now what needs to happen in order to effectively put those goals and plans into place with a strategy? We need to make decisions. And is it always easy to make decisions? No. We're going to talk a lot about that. What are some of the factors that hinder our ability to make decisions? Lack of information. How about lack of authority? How about not enough time? How about not enough resources? I don't have enough money to buy that car, so that eliminates that, but I really want to buy that car, but I'm going to have to come back next year in order to do that. We, as human beings, are built to, as effectively and as efficiently as possible, make good decisions. And if you think about the theory of evolution, or even a theory of creation, we are programmed with fight and flight and freeze. It's where you have a saber-toothed tiger in front of you. You have a decision to make. Are you going to fight the saber-toothed tiger? Or are you going to run away from the saber-toothed tiger? Or are you going to freeze? So our brain is programmed to pick in difficult situations. Literally, our genetics conjure up these nerves and these thought processes and this anxiety in our system to make a decision. Because guess what? If we don't make a decision, what happens? Our survival is in jeopardy. We're built to survive. There's consequences. There you go, to these basic decisions. And if we're in an environment where we're constantly making those high-pressure, anxious, fight-or-flight, difficult decisions, we could be programmed to make decisions too quickly in a state of fear, in an emotional sense, and not a logical sense. Think about the logic that you've put in to a decision with the saber-tooth tiger. How much logic are you using? Well, let's see. The tiger's about 566 pounds. Wrong, There's wrong. a no, range up freeze. there that I can jump onto. Um, do I have anything in my pockets I can fight the tiger with? Yeah. No. Boom. You're making a decision real quick. And it's going to depend. You're, you're, you're going to operate in these, these heightened state of awareness. And I'm sure you guys have heard stories about the mothers flipping over cars when there's a baby underneath it. This is what humans are pop can do when they're in those type of environments. 
Now we have to realize that we have evolved to the point where we no longer have to make those types of decisions. Hopefully we live in a decently pleasant neighborhood where people aren't pointing guns at us. Hopefully we have some resources where we have a financial means to eat food and we can protect our family and we don't have saber-toothed tigers chasing us around anymore. So as managers and leaders, we're meant to make decisions in a different context, in a different environment. We're meant to use our minds more than we use our fight and flight. We're meant to use our logic, our rational, classical decision-making, not paying attention to the emotion as much as we pay attention to the logic. Facts, three ways, if you break it down, that you can make decisions based on facts, faith, and fear. Which of these do we not want to make decisions on as managers and leaders? Fear. What would be an example of making a decision based on fear? The tiger would be a good one, but let's think about an organizational decision, a managerial decision. We say, man, we got to do that because I'm afraid of losing money. I'm afraid of a comp competitor making a mistake. That's a great one. Fear of failure. I don't want to look bad in front of other people. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my job, so I better – send out 55 emails before the end of the day, or I better show my boss that I'm better than my coworker. It's just that it's, it's the wrong basis on making a decision. How about faith? These two can be combined. Can you make a decision based on faith? Of course. I believe, I think, I feel, I prayed, I, 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 I'm sensing a, a spiritual whatever, but if the facts are there, do you say that when you go to purchase a car from a car dealership, and you see a Lamborghini, and you see a car that would more logically be a car that you can afford. My faith wants me to have a Lamborghini. God, God provides the duck, but the duck doesn't fly in through the window cooked. You have to go out and get it. You have to kill the duck. You have to de-feather the duck. You have to cook it, fry it. What if you have to do things for it? So it's facts. So logically, you're going to choose things that you know more about, you're going to be more comfortable making those decisions based on facts as opposed to faith. Do we always have all the facts? We don't. That's a problem. Our decisions that have, you have all the facts. You know everything that could happen. There's a very, very large, small margin of error. 99.9%. You believe this is going to happen. Sometimes even those decisions are difficult, right? It's no, so crazy how we have been choosing to put sunscreen on for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden the facts come out again that sunscreen isn't as effective as we thought it was going to be. So facts change too. The, the logic behind things change. So ambiguity. If we do not have all the facts, we have to rely on some portion of faith. We just have to believe that this is the right decision. And when we make it, we, we should go forward with confidence. Two concepts called the elephant and the rider. And the elephant is the emotion. The elephant doesn't really, it's just going to get roused up. They're going to go places and they're going to, but they carry you. The emotion drives the decision. Then you have a rider on top of the elephant, which is the logic that says elephant go this way. But when the elephant decides to sit down and be emotional and not want to deal with it, the logic isn't going to move it. So the elephant and the rider have to move together. The emotion drives the decision. It's a powerful force, but the logic is going to cooperate with the emotion in order for it to get down that path successfully and safely. So that's a little bit with emotion and logic, but let's talk about a decision that, that I made. I'll just use it from my perspective. Let's talk about how did I choose my wife? Was there emotion involved? It, did I have some sort of categorical thoughts behind my decision-making? Did I have some preconceived notions of what I wanted in my wife? The answer is yes. If I chose my, my full-time partner for the rest of my life, just strictly based on faith and emotion. Would that be a, a logical thing to do? Right, what are you looking for there? And what is your emotion saying? Think about that as a major decision and how emotions could really cloud your logic in choosing your future spouse. I mean, think about a job. It really looks cool to work at Google. I'm sure it's a fun place to work. I'm sure it's awesome. But is it logical for me to move to Austin, Texas and leave my family and everything I have here in order to do that. It feels good. I, I love my visit on the campus, but it's not logical. The classical, rational way of making a decision, and then there's the administrative way, which is more using intuition. 
Look at this as the rider, and this is the elephant. Deal or no deal? You guys know this game? Yay. This game plays into the irrational way of people making decisions. The game is strictly based on probability. How it works is there's a bunch of suitcases mm -hmm. up on the wall, and the suitcases all have numbers on it. And the numbers on the suitcases, it, it, they don't show you what's inside the suitcase. So you pick one suitcase, you put it next to you, and typically in these suitcases there's a million dollars, $500,000, and there's one dollar, then there's five cents. There's a probability game. If you see that a lot of these one cent and five dollar ones are no longer in play, you logically know that the big suitcases are out there. So then the banker calls you and makes you an offer to choose the suitcase that you have versus what else is left on the board. So the game is strictly based on probability. They throw so much drama yeah. at you, and they try to get you to make an emotional decision and not a logical decision. What are you going to do? Wait a minute. Let's call the banker. What does the banker have to say? And this is a perfect example of rational versus irrational decision making. Decision. A choice made from available alternatives. What alternatives did the lady and deal no deal have? She had the suitcase here. Okay, so she had a choice of alternatives. Decision making, the process of identifying problems and opportunities and then resolving them. What is her problem? Her problem is she doesn't want to work, she wants more money. It's kind of a pretty obvious problem. The opportunities she has are coming on the show. Then the opportunity she has is $121,000. Pretty good situation she's in. So she's obviously going through this decision making process. Program decisions involve situations that have occurred often enough to enable decision rules to be developed and applied in the future. So these, Howie is on a program decision model. Howie knows how the show works. Howie knows that when they pick this box, he's going to say this thing to the contestant. She's going to have a choice. He's in a program decision mode. He's operating based on logic. He's done this many times. The contestant, though, this is not a program decision. This is a first-time decision for them. Less program decision, non-program decision, more uncertainty, more ambiguity. The banker has a probability chart next to him with data analytics. Non-program decisions made in response to situations that are unique are poorly defined and largely unstructured and have important consequences for the organization, for the lady and the contestant, for the lady's family, you name it. Primary difference between programmed and non-programmed decisions and the degree of uncertainty. How certain is the banker of his offer to that lady as the chances of that lady picking the million dollars? He's a banker. He's using a model. He's pretty certain of his model and the probability that she's going to select a certain case or what comes next. He's much more certain than she is. She's lacking information to make her decision. They put you in that position for a reason. Risk. Decision has clear-cut goals and good information and available, but future outcomes associated with each alternative are subject to chance of loss or failure. Is it important? She, she closed the, the button, didn't she? Mm -hmm. She chose what? No deal. Which is? The risk. More risky. Could that risk pay off for her? Yeah. Very much so. So risk is not always a bad thing. The, the concept of risk is looked at and stigmatized as, oh, we don't want to take risk. But truly, good business people and good managers, what they do is they understand risk, they analyze risk, and they mitigate risk. They, they try to decrease it as much as possible. So think about risk in that kind of way. Uncertainty goals are known, but information about alternatives and future events is incomplete. Conditions that affect the possibility of decision failure. Organizational problem, certainty, risk, uncertainty, ambiguity. These are factors that we have to take into consideration when making a decision. We do not want to operate in the ambiguity. Uncertainty is not fun either. We're willing to take an element of risk, but what we want is we want certainty. We know that this particular product's performance, if we invest this amount of money, it's going to return this amount of margin back to us. And if those facts are lined up, and we've done it many times on a programmed model, we're going to make that decision as managers. But are we always presented all of those facts? No. And I think we, we beat that home, especially with the, the example with deal or no deal. That is not a reality in our lives. And it's not a reality in our personal lives. It's not a reality in our managerial lives. And sometimes we have to know how to manage through that.
one of the difficulties of being in a leadership position that I faced when I was in a very high pressure situations, a lot of program decisions, but I was sort of siloed in the information I could share with people about future organizational events that I knew were going to happen. And I wasn't able to communicate to the people within my organization about certain things that I could communicate with them about. So I was plagued with a large deal of, I wouldn't say fear, but uncertainty and risk. I was risking things on a regular basis and I was keeping that contained in my mind. It's the purpose of me saying that is sometimes, and if I could really drive this home as a, just a mentor, a friend of yours, is management leadership could do things to you that it could affect you. It could traumatize you because you could make a decision and you could fail and you could jeopardize losing out on a career opportunity. You could jeopardize risking things for your own organization that if you didn't make the right decision, that people below you are going to suffer. The decisions that we make as leaders and managers affect. That's why we're in a position of leadership. Affect the people below us. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel? Uneasy. How about somebody else? Yeah. Isn't it funny? So you get on a plane. Are you questioning the pilot about his ability to fly the plane? But we trust in the process of the pilot. How about a, a person that manages our money? Do we trust that they manage our money well? We might ask them more because it's more in our control. Isn't that funny? The, the plane could crash and we could lose everything, but we probably question the person who manages our money more. But what I'm trying to say is that person that's flying the plane, do you want him to feel a little bit uneasy and uncertain about his leadership of this plane? He stood up and said, I want to be a pilot. And hopefully some of you will leave this class and stand up and say, I want to be a leader. I want to be a manager because if not you, then who? If you're in a position of leadership and you're a manager, and you have control of your own competencies, your own ability to wake up in the morning, drink one cup of coffee, and not drink other substances that could hurt your day, and you feel as if, and you know that you're gonna be in a good position to make solid decisions. Why not step up and make them? Why not risk the uncertainty and the ambiguity, and if something goes wrong, it's okay. You're a leader, you're built for this, is to encourage you that, listen, making decisions is not easy. But there's a science to it. And we can apply that science to hopefully make the right decisions. If we don't make the right decisions, guess what? You're not alone. <laughs> and it's okay. And we can pick ourselves up. Don't take the potential of making a decision and it failing to limit you from becoming a leader or a manager in the future. And know that with program decisions and time and practice in the position of leadership or management will help you make the right decisions. If you learn how to do it, if you read the book, if you practice some of these things in your personal life. One of the, the best things that I was told to do with something called drawing boundaries in relationships, I was told to start drawing boundaries with, with strangers, people that I don't even know. When a homeless man comes up to me and asks me for money, I'm so sorry, I don't have money right now. When a waitress says, uh, can I get you your check? You say, no, actually, I don't want my check right now. I'm not going to need it. It's not rude. It's not bad. You're just making a decision, and you're saying no. No, thank you. That is very permissible in everything you do. As leaders, it's the same thing. It's a muscle that we have to flex. Yes, I would like to do that. I'm not sure. I need some more facts. Please provide me with facts. Or here's a good one. I don't know. I'm going to have to get back to you. Or yes, I think that's a good decision. And just that's it. Practice those things. Often, no right answer. That's not a situation we want to be in with, with as a manager. So we want to do everything we can to avoid those situations. Decision-making models. Choice among three main models of decision-making approaches. Depends on the manager's personal preference, whether the decision is programmed or non-programmed, and the degree of uncertainty associated with the decision. Talked about the classical model with rational decision-making. Talked about the administrative model with intuition, a gut feel, a little bit more emotion. And then there's the political model. So when we do have these blurry areas where we have faith, what do we do? We, we make some assumptions. If we don't have all of the facts about the potential car that we should drive, we make assumptions based on how the car looks, how the car smells. We go for a test drive. We just assume that since we completed the test drive, when we drive it off the lot, it's still going to run. It's not going to fall apart on us. There are certain things that we have to assume are going to operate. Decision maker operates to accomplish known goals. Problems are defined. Decision maker strives for certainty and gathers information. Results are calculated. Criteria for evaluation of alternatives are known. 
selects alternatives that maximize economic return. Wouldn't that be the most rational way to make decisions? Are we always operating based on some of these things that we said here? No. And I think what's good is that we're, we're self-aware, not only of the logic, but what we talk about of our emotional state when we make some of these decisions. What's bounded rationality? We just started at this organization. We don't have all the rationale behind it. There has to be an element of intuition. If you think for whatever reason that I wrote a script for what I'm going to say tonight, wrong. I, I'm, I'm bounded by rationality of what I can accomplish in preparation for this class. So I add intuition. I add, I add emotion to it. I add, based on what I understand and what I know, I'm going to change my decision-making within the moment. It's bounded. The rationality I can, I can make right now about what I'm going to say next is bounded. You do not always have all the rational oomph in you to make decisions. You're bounded by rationality. Satisficing, choosing the first solution that satisfies minimum decision criteria. Our brain is designed in order for us to make smooth decisions, to operate effectively. It's okay not to sit around on your text message deciding what word you're going to put for this text message for 15 minutes because you have a choice of 60 million words to use. Just write the message, send it, and move on with your life. When you see a situation in the car when you're driving, if you think about when you first got your license versus now, your decision-making process is much clearer. It's much easier to make. So it's okay to satisfy in certain criteria in your life. And as you flex that muscle, like we talked about, of managing and leading other people, it becomes more natural. Classical model, very rational, fact-based, versus the assumptions of an administrative model, goals are often vague and conflicting. Managers are often unaware of problems or opportunities. Rational procedures are not always used. Simplistic view of problems. Okay, we got a situation where managers, somebody called out of work. Uh, we're, we're the leader of that particular person. If you look at the classical model, you say, okay, well, I have to get HR. I have to go into the process of my uh, payroll reporting. I have to dock them. I have to submit paperwork to make sure they know. Or the administrative model is, hey, you know, I know they have a couple kids, no problem. You send them a quick text, hey, hope everything's good. We're here if you need us. And you move on with your day. A lot less procedural thought and rational thinking goes into that. Manager searches for alternatives are limited. Most managers settle for satisficing, combining intuitive and analytical thinking. And that's where you have facts and faith. Who believes that quasi-rationality and combining these two is the right way to go? Probably more logical. And some decisions may sway a little bit more on this side because you just have more facts or you, know, you, you have to operate within a procedural model. So you don't really have much of a choice. And we'll talk about that in structure versus here, you want to not just be a hippie with your decision making. Feels good, sounds good, cool dude, let's do it, man. Maybe I'm just feeling this one, man. I don't really want that person to be my manager either. So political model, here we go. Useful for non-programmed decisions when conditions are uncertain, information is limited, and there is a manager conflict about goals to pursue or actions. An example of a political model of decision-making would be you know you want to do something. You want an extra birthday party that year, and you don't have all the authority or whatever to make that decision. But you can politic your way into figuring out a way to get it done creatively within an organizational structure. Is it unethical to do that? What if Jerry just came over your daughter's birthday party the other day, and Jerry is in charge of, we'll just say, birthday party celebrations at your office. And you and Jerry are like this. You've already been told that you're, you've exceeded the number of birthday parties you can throw for your team that year. It's clear. The rational model says no. But the political model, but what if Jerry is confined by a structure that gives very little autonomy and is fully classical? What happens? What's Jerry going to say? Are there organizations where it doesn't matter how many birthday parties Jerry came to your house and celebrated? If he makes that decision, he's going to get in big trouble, and somebody's going to find out, and Jerry's going to get fired, and you might get fired too. Is that a possibility? See, that's why it's tough to say, we all may operate here. Come on, Tina's on my team. She's been here a long time. I know we just threw a birthday party last week, but we'd like to have another one today. Jerry, what do you think? Jerry says, listen, I, I can do this. Let's go ahead and execute it, but let's not make this a habit. Organizations are made up of groups with diverse interests, goals, and values. Information is ambiguous and incomplete. Managers do not have the time, resources, or mental capacity to identify all dimensions and process 
All information regarding the problem decisions are the result of bargaining and discussion among coalition members. Of course, that's the political model of decision making. Coalition is informal alliance among managers who support specific goals. Jerry and I like Tina. We're on the same team. We would like to do well for her and celebrate her birthday. What if Jerry doesn't like Tina? So he can have he can have a coalition against personal mentoring and choose not to make that decision. You just have to know that these realities exist at work, and the political model is one that people do make, take into consideration when making decisions. So we got the classical model, we got the administrative model, we got the political model. These are characteristics of decision-making models. Classical, clear-cut problems and goals. Administrative, vague problems and goals. Political, pluralistic, conflicting goals. How do you make important decisions? Well, Professor Kirscher, I recognize there's a decision requirement involved in this process. I diagnose and analyze all the cases and causes. I develop alternatives. Then I select from the desired alternatives. Then I implement the chosen alternatives. Then I evaluate my decision. And in order to make better decisions in the future, I have a decision evaluation meeting with me and my wife every day. That would have been a great answer to that question. How come nobody answered it that way? How come, how come we don't have this little wheel on the board over there? Because we're human beings. This is crazy. We're not robots. We don't make decisions like this. Well, let's see. Um, I'm sore and I'd like to recognize this decision that I'm about to make about buying this shirt. It's very difficult for us to break out of the normal way in which we operate and to go through this model. I beg of you to understand that you must do this as managers and as leaders to stop driving forward and pause and go through some level of this model when making important decisions at work. That's one of the major takeaways from a managerial perspective that we have to do. Know that this little wheel is important to understand. Know that you have a resource in going to this little wheel and seeing why am I making this decision, what's going on here, and know that you can confide in other people about this process and ask them for their feedback. You can do your research. Make probably a better decision if you go through some level of process than you would just, how's that sound? Yeah, let's go. That was the real decision to make. Do I stay at work? Do I go surfing? But if we were to go surfing, and this is what we're all doing, yeah, there might be a choice of alternatives. Do I stay home with my family? And do I play video games today inside? Uh, or do I go outside because it's going to be beautiful and they probably check the waves to see what that looks like? So it's a kind of a small process here, but we all go through this process somehow. Some of us fly through it, some of us go through it a little bit differently. Recognition of decision requirement. Because sometimes people don't even, don't even notice that they're about to make a decision. We just do it. But we have to recognize, okay, let's stop. There's a decision to be made here. Then from there, we diagnose and analyze. A question asking method used to explore the root cause underlying a particular problem. Typically, tough decisions at work are based on an existing problem. And if you go to the doctor, what does the doctor do when you come in and say, I'm sick? They ask about your symptoms. They inquire more because they know that there's a problem, right? So a question asking model used to explore the root cause underlying a particular problem. Well, tell me more about your symptoms. Tell me more about what's going on. And as you start speaking, the doctor is narrowing down his diagnosis by the answers to your questions. But the doctor would never get to the root of the problem unless they inquired about what's going on. So that's step two, diagnose and analyze. Major step. There's a decision to be made. There's probably a problem to be had. Let's diagnose and analyze. Let's inquire further about that. When someone comes to you and says, hey, Charlotte, we have an issue on floor number six. The attendant for that floor didn't show up to work today, and now everybody's acting kind of crazy. I'm going up there right now, and I'll make sure that attendance put in place. That's a decision. But Or you can say, well, what does it mean everybody's acting out? What are they doing? Oh, they're just tapping their pen on the, the table like this. Well, why isn't Charlotte in today? Well, it's her day off. <laughs> or how can I be of assistance? Well, actually, I didn't need you to help. I just wanted to inform you about what's going on. So if you just ran up there like an idiot, trying to make decisions and take control of a situation without asking questions, I wouldn't look like an idiot. So that's the point of when somebody comes to you, with a, to you with a problem and you think there's a decision to be made, which there probably is, you just want to inquire more about what's going on. 
Do we have time to inquire when the saber-toothed tiger is coming after us? What's your name? Would that be wise? No, you, you're making a decision real quick. But again, remember, we're not in that. So it could have been a metaphorical saber-toothed tiger. Things are acting out on the sixth floor, Charlotte did jump. This lady may be acting out of her emotion, but does that mean we as managers, logically driven managers, need to respond with an equal level of emotion? No. We can inquire. Their emotion doesn't have to be our emotion. Tell me more. Do you have a picture? Do you have a video of them acting out? That sounds interesting. A lot of times, emotional decisions could lead to more difficult emotional decisions down the road. If we didn't have any decisions to make because our emotion wasn't getting us out of bed in the morning and driving us to work and getting us in front of other people, we, we wouldn't be in a good situation either. But once we are no longer being chased by tigers, once we are no longer in this fight, flight, fear phase, we want to make sure we, we add as much logic and minimize the emotion as much as we possibly can when we make decisions. Step three, development of alternatives. Okay, so there's a craze happening on the sixth floor. I've just asked my questions. Now I have to decide, okay, do I go up there and figure out matters more? Or do I just send the CEO a quick message and let him know that there's a situation going down, but it, it doesn't require immediate assistance? Or do I tell Jenny that she's being a little bit out of line, uh, gossiping around the office about people hitting their pens on the table? That there's these alternatives. And I'll have to choose between the boxes, deal or no deal. It's my turn now. Then I have to select one of those desired outcomes. So let's bring it back. There's a decision. There's probably a problem. I inquired about the problem. I asked some questions. I developed alternatives. Okay, based on the answers to those questions, I now have three different alternatives I can choose from. Now what do I do? I select one of those alternatives. Step four, and then step five is once I select it, I go up there and I implement it. I do the decision that I implement. I say no deal. I physically put the thing down. Or I say deal and I go home with $121,000, which doesn't sound like a bad situation to me. And then once I get off the show, and or we'll stick to the sixth floor example because that's always fun. And once I go up there and I see what's going on and that lady was right, and these guys are dancing around in their in their bathing suits upstairs, and it's out of control. Now I can say, I'm so happy I chose to come up here and try to put this place back in order. Because what if I chose not to do anything? What if I didn't believe her? And they had a bathing suit party all day long and were, and I got fired because I mean, it's, it's funny, and I like to add the humor to the situation, but these are these are logical things, maybe not a bathing suit party, but these types of things are very important. And what's so awesome, I think, about step number six is, and I heard this one time, and I'll never forget it, anything worth doing is worth evaluating in management. If you're going to have a leadership meeting, and it's going to be two hours, I hope you get together with two or three of your core leaders after that meeting, and you evaluate what happened in that meeting. How do we do? How did I do? Evaluate what you did and the decisions that you made. If you implement a new product, or a new service, and you can measure that product or service for the next two months, you have to say, okay, based on our decision to implement it, was that decision a good one? Was it a good decision? And you can learn from your decisions. Personal decision framework. I don't do well with authoritarian decisions. I don't love telling people that they have to tuck their shirt in while they're at work. Just don't like that. So my style will dictate the decision choice. I may go to their manager instead and say, hey, can you help me remind so-and-so to tuck their shirt in? Or I may have a non-decision. I may just tuck my shirt in myself and go over to them and say, hey, how you doing? Looking good today. You know, that'd be passive aggressive. But the point is, with that example, and maybe you can relate that sometimes our personal decision style will affect the decision that we make. Who here likes conflict? So if you knew you were about to run upstairs onto the sixth floor and have to raise your voice telling people to settle down, would that play into your decision-making prior to making this? You'll probably choose to look at a video, or maybe you can look at a camera that's up there. Or you might text somebody instead of call them. Who does that? Who really wants to talk to them? Probably not. I'd rather just text them. That's a personal decision style. I personally like calling people, especially when it comes to an elaborate decision. But directive, analytical, conceptual, behavioral, these are our personality characteristics that we possess that will 
determine our decision choice. It's not all by the book. There's other factors at play. Decision style is distinctive among people with respect to how they evaluate problems, generate alternatives, and make choices. Directive style prefers simple, clear-cut solutions to problems. Who here has a boss or a mom or a dad or a spouse? They want to know, what do you want to eat tonight? And you say, well, we had turkey last night, so tonight. And they just say, why are you telling me a story about what we had last night? Why is this taking so long? Why don't you just say sushi? Some people, their decision-making style, they don't have much room for nonsense. They just want to know facts. They want you to present them facts, and they want to make a decision based on the fact. That's a directive style. Save the story, get to the facts, try to make a decision here, stop clouding it with nonsense. Analytical style, this one's fun. Base decisions on all available rational data. Well, let me go to the computer and pull up what we've eaten over the last three or four weeks, <laughs> and I'll decide based on the probability of us getting uh, salmonella whether or not we're going to choose China. And they're like, oh, you know, let me just analyze the, this decision. The example is just to show you that those people exist. The data driven. Well, I'll give me a, a matrix table in an Excel format, and I'll do a pivot chart, and I'll, I'll help you back. Wait a minute, man. we're just deciding whether or not we want to, you know, give turkeys out on Wednesday before Thanksgiving or Tuesday. Like, why do we have to go into depth as to whether or not the behavioral choices of our employees are going to manifest more profitability if we give it out on Tuesday or to Wednesday? But that's some people think like that. Or let's go to conceptual style. I like this one. Use a broad amount of information to solve problems creatively. So we'll go back to the food. Creative problem solving. Uber Eats, hey, I know you don't want to cook. Um, you ask a couple more questions. Uber Eats could be fun tonight. Why don't we do that instead of going out? There's three different alternatives. Cook from home, order Uber Eats, or we go out to eat. And you just sort of say, hey, let's choose one that we haven't done in a while. Let's do something different. There's a couple different options here, but let's get creative. Or maybe let's choose a fourth option that we can think of. Why don't we ask our kids to cook for us tonight? I want to move to Jenny's house. She invited us over to dinner last week. Why don't we call her and see if she wants to have dinner together? Uh, behavioral style. Exhibit a deep concern regarding effect of decisions on others. You just want to get some food for dinner. And you ask, Whatever. what do you want to eat tonight? Whatever you want, sweetie. Or, well, Jenny's a little sick, so maybe she wants soup. I ask about Jenny. I ask about you. <laughs> what do you want? Or our daughter's sick. But really, this is an important one if you, if you take it away from the context of, of just ordering food. Before you make a major decision to restructure your organization, you think about some of the people who've been there for a really long time and whether or not they're going to be able to fit into the new structure. If you are uh, expanding into a new office building and so-and-so is going to lose their, their private desk and they're going to have to work at a communal desk, but they really don't like working with other people, it becomes complex. It's not just a, you're taking into account all the people on your team that you care deeply for. You're their desires and their thoughts and, and their wants and their beliefs are impeding upon your decision-making style. Self-aware of your environment and the people within your environment, you were concerned for other people when you make decisions. And again, any of these as extreme is extreme. But there's certain contexts that each of these would make more sense. I'm personally, I like this one when making simple decisions. Uh, I'm a little bit more on this one when it comes to financial decisions. Uh, conceptual style, use a broad amount. This is good for creativity and curiosity decisions, new ventures, new uh, ways to spin out the company, new ways to make money, uh, challenging situations that desire some more thought. And behavioral style would be more people-centric decisions, not financial, not simple, people-centric. Hiring, firing, these different styles and always reflect back on what we said, I think it was last time, about situational leadership. This is a classic example of how and when we make the decisions, we cannot just sit and rest on one of these. We have to use all of them. Um, angering bias, uh, develop a opinion about a decision that we're gonna make pretty quickly, and it's very hard for us to leave that space. So prior to coming into a meeting, we know that the meeting is about whether or not we're gonna have, allow people to work from home or not. We already know that the meeting is gonna be about that. So I just read an article about the benefits of working from home and all of the lifestyle choices you can make. And I just read that article. So when I go into this meeting, what, what do you think my, my decision is going to be? And I'm not going to be very conducive to listening to other people's opinions. And that's also something called a confirmation bias. I'm looking for information 
for people to validate my work from home choice occurs when a manager puts too much value on evidence that is consistent with a favorite belief or viewpoint and discounts evidence that contradicts it. But why don't I go and seek the opposing opinion? Why don't I go and ask somebody how they feel about a subject matter that I'm so, why don't I unconfirm my biases or just do some research on the opposing, on the opposing party and think about how much you're going to learn. You may even strengthen your, your position if you just learn about the opposing party's position. Don't just look for the evidence that confirms what you already know. So these decisions are major, huge decisions that a lot of times people are so bent on knowing that this is a decision I want, which you can understand and you can affirm, but the other reality is we have to be open-minded to at least listening to other people's perspective. If you talk to a person in that context where they're just so narrow-minded and so argumentative about their point, it, it's futile. You want to be around a manager or leader that just sat on working from home. But I'm still open and willing and eager to, to talk about other people's opinions. And if they give me some facts that I've never maybe considered or never thought about in the past, I'm not just going to dismiss it as I, I, I'm actually interested in learning more. Tell me more. This could build a relationship. Eventually, maybe I can convince you in my way. But I can't just seek information that proves my point and only my point. That's confirmation bias. And, of course, anchoring bias is I just read an article, I stepped into a meeting, likely going to vote based on what I just experienced. Okay, so we make a decision because we're worried that when Apple and Samsung are competing against one another, Samsung has this phone now, maybe you've seen the commercials that takes selfies, it like flips. I don't know if it's Samsung, it's an Android or something. It's a touchscreen phone, but it flips. You've seen it? So Apple would say, oh my gosh, we got to get in that space because we might lose some of our customers to that phone. They're, they're where they make a decision based on some customers that might leave Apple. If a stronger response to a potential loss than an expected gain, Apple can say, I'm going to invest in that space. If, if Apple was worried that they're going to lose customers and they all of a sudden dive into a space that Android has been in a really, for a really long time based on fear of losing customers, they could fail miserably because of that because they're not focusing on what they're really good at which is the App Store, which is iTunes, maybe just regular photos. They may not be interested in that kind of customer, but they'll make silly decisions based on the fear of losing. We, don't, we can't make decisions on that based on what we're afraid we're going to lose. But we do. Stronger response to a potential loss than expected gain, especially financial decisions. Oh, so the emotion that we get from making $30,000 is much less that, that, that emotional response than we would get if we lost $30,000. We would be crushed. Oh my God, we crushed. But if we made it, we'd say, yeah, like it's cool. Life is good. Like we wouldn't think as much about it versus if we lie. It's kind of like when you get a bad experience at McDonald's or at any restaurant. Talk about it, you think about it, you dwell on it. But think about all the good experiences you've had throughout the day. You're focusing on the loss. The brainstorming, electronic brainstorming, and evidence based decision making, these are just decision making techniques. But it's getting people together and it's getting them to solicit opinions. The challenges with that. And nobody really said anything because of the physical environment. But if I asked you anonymously to vote electronically, electronic brainstorming, it could solicit a little bit more, more ideas, more truth, because it's anonymous and it's electronic. So you can see the difference between brainstorming and electronic brainstorming. It brings people together in an interactive group over a computer network. You're not physically present. You might choose to, to act differently. I'm sure we all kind of understand that now with working from home and virtual meetings, even text messages. People have alter egos on Instagram, and they're a totally different person. In person. Oh, man. That story, this, this lady is um, a business friend of mine, a customer, has a daughter, and on her Instagram, she's got like 100,000 followers. And she goes and dives, and she does all of these unbelievable things. On her Instagram, and she she acts as if she is like the most charismatic, gregacious, outgoing person. And you meet her, and she's like, "Hi, are you the same person that's on the Instagram? Because on the Instagram, you're you're acting really energetic and, and outgoing. And in person, it didn't even look like the same person. Number one, and she just was a totally different person. I'm sure you have friends. I'm sure you've noticed that in your own life that electronically and digitally, they're different people than in person. But without that example, just use that." As a, as a good thing, sometimes when you want to solicit people's opinions, when you want to make decisions, 
it's good to, to know that doing it in a different fashion could help. Evidence-based decision-making and commitment to make more informed and intelligent decisions based on the best available facts. I understand now, and I've not been a part of it, that when they interview people virtually, they have this software that they can detect you know, whether you're nervous or if you repeat words. It is a algorithm that reads your facial muscles. And they can tell from data whether or not you're a good fit and what your personality type is just by the way you look and the way you smile, how many times you smile. And that's how they make some of those decisions to hire a person. So again, it's an extreme where that's evidence-based decision-making. That's how, Is that a good thing? Maybe, maybe not. We can figure that out over time. Having a devil's advocate, I say, what do you think? Are you sure? Well, what do you think about this? So I try to solicit a multitude of different opinions, different thoughts into the conversation. If you and your two friends are deciding that you are going to invest all your money with Johnny because he, he's a good financial advisor, and you all know Johnny, and Johnny's been a, a friend of yours for a long time in high school, and you just think this is a great decision, you and your two friends are going to give all your money to Johnny to invest. That, that may not be a logical thing. You may ask somebody to provide you with a devil's advocate. Come into this conversation, and what's the worst that can happen? Give, give me a different perspective so that we're not just swayed towards one particular idea. And it's the same thing with groupthink. The devil's advocate may come and say, I don't think Johnny's a good idea. They may not really care, but they want to know, well, what are you, how are you going to respond to that? How are you going to combat and tell me why Johnny's a good idea that's going to prove my point wrong? That's a devil's, a devil's advocate. Groupthink is a tendency of people in groups to suppress contrary opinions. A groupthink, if us three got together, we're, we're saying, well, look at us. You know, we're, we're pretty sure that this is the right thing, and her different opinion doesn't really count. We don't really care. That's groupthink. And that's a, a bad thing when it comes to decision-making. We want to try to prevent that as much as possible, that groupthink mentality. We want to bring in other opinions, and we want to listen to what they have to say. Escalating commitment, once you have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of resources invested, it's a lot harder to back out. So instead, you just put even more in. You're, you're recommitting yourself. It's, you're not taking into consideration that it's a sunk cost, meaning we have to cut ties and go somewhere else. That's escalating commitment. Postmortem is when you make a bad decision, learn from your bad decisions, even some of your good decisions. Premortem is purposely imagining a decision that you've implemented and, and that it's failed miserably and then identifying reasons for the failure. What if this thing fails miserably? Why did it fail? But you start discussing that prior to even making the decision. The contingency plan is, okay, when it fails, here's what we're gonna do. But the, the pre-mortem is, when it fails, why did it fail? And let's not even make that decision to begin with if we have a whole bunch of reasons why it would fail. It's, it's eliciting a different thought process. Structure and decision-making are connected big time. The, my strategic goal is that you retain the information that you think one day, oh man, I remember that time cross party with the big bathing suits on the sixth floor, and that is, I have, I'm faced with a challenging decision right now. I should ask some questions. Like, that is a goal. So if it's from the video that you learn, if it's from my stories, or if it's from the discussion, maybe you learn something different. So in prefacing going into structure, my idea is to structure the class based on my strategic goal. So as an organization, as a manager, and as a leader, you have to think before you structure an organization, what are we doing? What's our strategy? What's our goal prior to doing structure? And at times, you, you want to drive the structure towards the strategy. And the structure comes, structure comes after strategy. We have a strategy. Now let's build the structure to accomplish the strategy. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it is if you have a company that's been around for a really long time, and that structure is going to be challenging to change, and you have a new strategy, sometimes you adopt the strategy to the structure. It's a big uh, physical premise of bricks and mortar stores, and it's all over the world, and all of a sudden, Starbucks, you want to go online or virtual coffee. I'm not sure if that's going to be the right strategy for us. We should probably adopt a strategy to our physical nature of our stores. That's one example. Versus... If you're delivering things like Amazon.com and you have this online platform, you could, might change your strategy to start doing something different, and the structure might be able to adapt to that. So that's just kind of some examples. And all the structure is is an organized way to execute on goals, to make decisions, and to do stuff. 
the deployment of organizational resources to achieve strategic goals. Organizational structure is the set of formal tasks assigned to individuals and departments, and the reporting structure associated with that. Formal reporting relationships the design of systems to ensure effective coordination of employees across departments. We had a structure in our organization. We went through two different departmentalizations and restructuring of the company, and I led the entire thing because it was not being done well. So we had a, a GM of the pool company. We had a GM of the construction company. And we had a GM, GM stands for general manager, by the way, of the landscape company. And they were in silos. They were operating. They had their own way of doing customer service. They had their own way of doing financials. And they had their own way of managing people and doing sales, whatever the basics of an organization are, based on the GM's skill set, technique, whatever they were capable of employing. And so we had three separate ways of doing this. And we were growing, and we were facing the same problems over and over again. They're usually customer-based complaints, and it usually led to the capabilities and the capacity of the general manager. So I completely blew apart that entire structure and centralized the organization. And I took it from that, what you just saw there, to we are one company, a CFO, and a human resource manager, and a senior vice president of operations so and they manage all companies this is construction landscape and pool so the cfo managed the finance department which had accounts receivable accounts payable and uh, procurement that won't design the whole structure the hr person was really over all hr and not just one particular division and then we had all of our line people down here, so I centralized the structure. It was decentralized, and I centralized it. Consolidated responsibilities, because they specialize in accounts receivable, they can do it for all entities. Because they're specialized in HR, they can do it with all entities. As opposed to being an HR person for landscape, and you gotta find another HR person here, another HR person here, and it was really the general manager who was wearing way too many hats. So I can go into more detail, but you can see why structure matters. It changed everything. We went from an organization that was doing, we were maybe doing like six million in sales collectively to an organization that two years later we're doing 12 million in sales. And it literally in two years. And it took it took 20 years to get the six with that structure that I explained. And then two years later we were at 12 because we restructured and we departmentalized and we created an ability to scale because of the specialization. So that, that's a, I centralized business. That's not always a good thing. Six years or a couple years later, I thought about decentralizing it again just because of the complexities of the centralization. It wasn't just because of the restructuring, but that played into it. We were not capable of doing more under the structure that we had before. So obviously there were multiple other factors that contributed to it. Uh, the tough part with this structure is there was a lot of annoyance with the CFO and the, the SVP of ops, because they're running the people in the field, but they're controlling the money. So the communication between the different departments was tough. And they had their own, own culture over here, and they don't really know what's going on in the field. Whereas if you remember before, the, the divisional structure, the divisional structure really had, everybody knew what everyone was doing. It was a little bit easier to communicate and get things done. This required more procedures and policies and chains of command and job descriptions and it has its own complexities to manage but obviously it grew the company. Division of labor and degree to which organizational tasks are subdivided into separate jobs, chain of command and unbroken line of authority that links all employees in the organization and shows who reports to whom. This payroll clerk reports to the chief accountant. This vice president reports to the president. This western salesperson reports to the director of marketing. Our line staff members Likely, and these are more managerial staff, and this is executive. Authority, responsibility, and delegation. What's the difference between authority and responsibility? Yeah, if you have authority, you likely also have responsibilities. If I have responsibility for something, to get something done, but I don't have authority over a person that I need in order to get that thing done, could that be difficult? So if I have responsibility, but I don't have authority, that's a challenge. And I'm sure you guys can think of examples in your work where 
you're being asked to do things, but you don't have authority to get them done. It's you got to politic and ask people, for, you know, maybe give them 20 bucks. Please, like, can you please do this? Ask you 10 times and you're not doing it because you don't have authority. That person doesn't work for you. You can't just say, do it. I'm going to fire you. You know, you can't do that. You don't have authority. So you have to figure out a different way to do it. So, but typically, authority is vested in a position. So sometimes people in authority, they have authority because they want the position and the power. I book the motive by Patrick Nancioni, which is on the syllabus, talks a lot about that. Is that sometimes people seek authority for the wrong reasons. They want power, but they have no idea. They want it for self-gain, self-interest, status. Once they get there, they're like, I made it. Which Patrick Lanzoni says, no, no, you know, you got to work even harder now because you are where you are. Because now you're in a position where people are counting on you and you have more responsibility. You better, some people shouldn't be in leadership is what I'm trying to say. They shouldn't have authority because they suck. <laughs> or they don't know what they're doing. Well, we just were up in front of the people talking about this great goal and this awesome plan you have for our department. I just have some follow-up questions. Well, that was just my job and I don't really... They put on authority, responsibility, responsibility, the duty to perform the task or activity as assigned. Accountability is a mechanism through which authority and responsibility are designed or aligned. Delegation, the process that managers use to transfer authority and responsibility down the hierarchy. When I was doing this, I was responsible for the whole organization. But then I said, hey, CFO, you have access to QuickBooks. You have access to all the bank accounts. I'm giving you full authority. And you can even sign checks. You can access this money, but I'm going to also make you responsible for ensuring there's no theft, for ensuring there's no misuse, for ensuring they're setting up systems and boundaries on which we operate. I delegated that to them. Whereas before, I had to do all that stuff myself. Delegating is an art in itself. If you delegate a person responsibility without authority, did you know you just did that? <laughs> did you know you just asked somebody to complete a task that you know, you're, they're setting them up for failure? Because you've asked them to complete a task that is you don't want to do it or you want it done, but you ask the wrong person. They they would love to help you, but they don't have they don't have the authority to make those decisions. So when you ask a person to do something, you have to make sure you're giving them responsibility, but you also should make sure they have authority. And if they don't have authority, just know that, talk to them about it and say, we'll get it done together. Or there's other ways you can get things done without authority, right? You can bribe them. No, it's it's relational, it's conversational. It's political, and you, you have mutual respect for one another. You ask a person to do something, and you say, please, can you help me? Take five minutes. Can you go grab that thing with the forklift? I don't have my forklift license. Can you help me out? Are they going to say no? They could, but and you, you're not their boss, but they, they'll, they'll help you out. So the point is you can get things done without having authority, especially when there's mutual goals. Mm -hmm. When you're in the same company, you will have the same mission. He's got control of the forklift, but he knows why you want that box because you're trying to give it to a customer. Most likely, you guys are going to help each other out. Line authority managers have formal authority to direct, control, immediate subordinates. Staff authority is a narrow authority that includes the right to advise, recommend, and counsel in the staff specialist area of expertise. This is a perfect example. If the senior vice president had an installer of material, Let's just say of palm trees, that day he's going to install palm trees. This person has line authority here. But this person here, the CFO, has staff authority because this person can advise. You can't tell this person what to do. Even the procurement specialist is a better example. This is the boss of the procurement specialist. But the procurement specialist is helping the installer with consultation as to the budget and the price of what the palm tree should be like. So they're not saying you must do this because you're subordinate to me. They're saying, hey, team member, let's get together and talk about that palm tree. And that, that can control. There's a lot of conflict there. That's what's difficult about managing this kind of structure. You're not my boss. Why are you telling me? Why are you send me emails? That kind of stuff happens too. Where you want to work together, and this person's ability to execute on their job will actually be, they'll do a better job if they consult with this person but just because of the chain of command, they just decide not to work together or when they receive information from that person, they don't take it with credibility. So a tall structure is there's a lot of chains of command. There's a sergeant, a drill sergeant, and a private, and an uh, officer, and a captain, and then there's this person up here. That's a tall authority versus there's a Zappos has a bossless 
structure. There's no bosses. You have no bosses. You have autonomy to do what you want when you want. You work on teams. You work with there's task forces to get projects done. You manage projects together. You really don't have authority. Nobody has authority over you, but you still have to get things done. You can see the extreme. And I think I talked about the example of being in the prison system versus working for Zappos. And a prison system is almost like the police force. You want there to be a line of command and an authority because it's a difficult environment to operate in without telling the guard, yo, you got to work, man. The prisoner's out there hurting somebody else, like, do it. And they're just like, oh, no, flat. There's a flat structure here. Nobody's my boss. And you're like, are you kidding me? It'd be chaos. But with Zappos, maybe that's a, an organization. Remember the strategy and the structure coincide and the goals. It depends. So that's an old, tall structure at the top versus a new, flat structure at the bottom. These people, know, they don't, they work together. They're not subordinate to one another. Where here, this person is subordinate to that person. Tall structure, flat structure. Departmentalization is fun. Human resources department, finance department, and then you have the sales and marketing department. Versus a division can operate with their own sales and marketing and all that kind of stuff within one particular place. That's This is divisional. Product one, product two. They have their own human resource manufacturing accounting, all in that one division. That's the first example I talked about up here. Versus a, a vertical human resource manufacturing accounting, the team base, is pretty interesting, and you might see a lot of this in project management. You might work in this concept a lot. You have a team, there's five people, you have a goal, there's one leader of the team. Everybody on the team has equal positionality. And you, you wear multiple hats on the team. I'm separating you guys into teams, I'm asking you to accomplish a goal, you're all sort of on the same page. People in different countries, it just makes sense for them to work together. The big ones are functional, divisional. These are the two you need to know. And then the matrix is if the functional and divisional don't really work, then you, you resort to a matrix structure, which you actually have two bosses. It's sort of complex. We won't get into the details of it. And you don't see that too often. So these companies are so big nowadays that, and I know my wife works for Baptist, and she, she worked in foundations. Now she's in patient experience. And a lot of her work in foundations, if you think about it, she's raising money for the hospital. So she has to know about what's going on at Baptist and multiple different aspects of the organization. So she was sort of, you can see these modes, she sort of is connected to a lot of stuff. But now she's in patient experience, only in Homestead Hospital. So all she cares about, she went from caring about all of Baptist and raising money for these multiple different initiatives, cancer, society, uh, they're, they're, doing, they're making sure people have food, they're doing all sorts of community initiatives and she was raising money in that effort. Baptist is a nonprofit. So now I only care about Homestead for the patient's experience. There's, there's facilities management, there's um, doctoral procedures, there's surgical. So it narrowed down a little bit more where it's a little bit more functional and versus what she was doing before. She was multiple functional teams. Now she just has one. So she likes the procedural, operational, uh, hierarchical kind of structure. These are three people that report to me. This is what they do because it, it adds more logic. It's less confusing. It's less ambiguous. So you can see how Zappos versus the being a security guard for the prison system, how they both have unique aspects to it, but they both have unique weaknesses as well. A task force special projects, think about it just like a task force or the uh, what they did with the Navy SEALs to go capture Osama bin Laden, that was a unique task force. So they pulled multiple different people, an engineer, a lighting specialist, a sniper. They pulled specialists together for a unique project. It's very similar to being a project manager. would be you have to manage that task force. If you remember Armageddon, where they recruited these crazy people from all over the world, this guy on an oil rig, this one guy was a cowboy, this other guy was a thief, and you know, who knows, but they all came together to save the planet. That was a task force ran by Bruce Willis, who was a project manager. Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. 